0: You're listening to episode 194 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into our episode for today, just a brief announcement. Next week, Friday, October 6, kicks off Mid-America Reformed Seminary's 2023 Center for Missions and Evangelism Conference at Bethel Church in Lansing, Illinois. This conference seeks to bring encouragement to church leaders and lay people alike by focusing on what it looks like to do faithfully reformed, outward-facing ministry in an age of adversity. There's still time to register if you haven't done so already. The final day to register is Friday, September 29. You can do so at midamerica.edu slash CME slash conference. Register today and join us for this opportunity as we seek to grow and learn together. Well, today we kick off a new set of podcast episodes with Dr. J. Mark Beach in the realm of systematic theology. In this first episode, he'll be discussing the Pactum Salutis, also known as the Covenant of Redemption, the agreement made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before creation to redeem fallen mankind. Check it out.
1: When we consider the matter of covenant theology, or what is sometimes called federal theology, federal reform theology, it's important to get something of the lay of the land. Usually federal theology is defined in its affirmation of a twofold covenant economy, that of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, the covenant of works established with Adam in paradise. And the covenant of grace, consequent or by God's grace, coming after, subsequent would be the word, subsequent to the fall, God entering into a covenant of grace whereby he finds remedy for the broken uh, covenant of works and the penalties and curse that fall out from that covenant. And then the covenant of grace in classic Reform theology his concern to point out that Christ himself is the substance of that covenant promise, that he fulfills the provisions of the original covenant of works to love God with all your heart, to obey God in every way, uh, a, a full and perfect obedience born of a heart of love, devotion, worship, adoration of God, and love of neighbor or self. So keeping all the the provisions of the law, but also then undergoing the penalty of the broken covenant of works. Dust you are, to dust you return, and uh, suffering the wrath of God for our sins. So a covenant of grace that then meets the demands and provisions and brings fulfillment to the original covenant of works. So Adam is the public person for the first covenant acting on behalf of all his progeny, Christ the second Adam uh, acting on behalf of his people to bring them to salvation. Another aspect to the covenant of grace that developed within Reformed Federal Theology was what came to be known the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis, the council of peace, which was viewed and termed an intra trinitarian covenant. It got parsed out differently. Some spoke of it strictly as between the Father and the Son, and others also included through the commissioning of the Father and the Son, the further work and activity of the Holy Spirit. The idea being that the Holy Trinity was active in the work of redemption and using the analogy of covenant within the Trinity itself, covenanted in a manner, uh, agreed upon the economy of salvation in a way that what takes place in the covenant of grace and back of it is God's eternal decree and within the Trinity itself, a mutual, united, single willing of the way of salvation for sinners. Focused, of course, that the Son would be our surety, our guarantor uh, to accomplish this work of redemption, uh, standing in our place as mediator, and being the one then who fulfills the law, fulfills all righteousness, and brings his people to the fullness of the redemption promised So you have Covenant of Works, Covenant of Grace, Covenant of Redemption, or Pactum Salutis, to focus a bit more, starting with that eternal Pactum, or agreement, that uh, covenant analogy dealing with the members of the Trinity. Some of the ideas and burdens of that is to show us that Christ himself isn't a happenstance he isn't an afterthought, that this was God's eternal plan to love us in Jesus Christ, and also to ground our assurance not in ourselves, but in the one who, who's the security for us, the guarantor for us. What we are not for ourselves is our own surety, our own guarantor. And that concept is important from Hebrews 7.22, that it was the will of the Son of God to offer himself as the surety to accomplish this redemption most certainly for his own, for his members. And so within 17th century Reformed theology, dealing with a variety of matters, the Pactum salutis emerged as a further development, amplification, explanation of what became known as the Covenant. Of grace, and um, that's a doctrine that it's it, it didn't ever come to very clear confessional expression. You might kind of read between the lines, but as such, you're not going to find, to my knowledge, a Reformed confession that has a heading or a development directly speaking of a pactum salutis or covenant of redemption. The concern of this covenant, though, is to ground the work of the Son in his work of incarnation and all that he achieves in the way of humiliation and exaltation, that this is part of the inner Trinitarian plan of God for our salvation. So some of the biblical uh, concepts that emerged out of this or something of the biblical account or reasoning for it uh, was cobbled together by means of uh, quite a number of texts. Uh, For example, in Psalm 40, the apostle uh, himself expounds this psalm as referring to the Messiah and Christ, the Messiah, comes in order to do the Father's will, to execute a plan, to carry out a mission. Hebrews 10.10, 10, Christ came in execution of God's divine purpose to ful- fulfill a work which had been a- assigned to him. Um, it's not as if the work assigned only started at a certain stage in his life, but it goes back into the eternal plan of God. John 17.4, Christ finishes the work God gave him to do. He has to be about his father's business, even as a 12-year-old boy, John 17, 18, he, Christ repeatedly for, refers to himself as being sent into the world by his Father, to uh, sent into the world. So again, a prehistory to that, a uh, work to accomplish. We have Galatians 4, 4, Christ comes in the fullness of time to fulfill his messianic commission and the like. And there's a variety of other texts that get added to this, uh, but perhaps to move to uh, what became more pivotal text in the history of this doctrine was uh, Luke twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, where um, Jesus says, I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me, and the particular way that's expressed in Greek is uh, arguably, admittedly, but by a testamentary arrangement I confer unto you. So to uh, I confer as I myself, something was conferred to me. So this idea that Christ isn't just here as a stopgap, the idea that Christ was assigned idea that the father and son had a relationship in which there was a commission, and assignment to be accomplished. Uh, again, by way of analogy, speaking of that as an agreement or a, an assignment, something rooted in God himself. What was at one time considered the classic text to defend the Pactum salutis was Zechariah 6.13, most exegetes today would regard that as a faulty proof text and uh, dubious, and it would take us too far afield to explore that. But that's among the more uh, controverted texts that were appealed to. Burden of poctum salutis, however, is for the believer to see that what Christ came to do, he was assigned to do. And so all those biblical passages that give a sense of the Son of God being commissioned, being sent, having a task to do that didn't commence at his baptism. It was confirmed and acknowledged at his baptism to fulfill all righteousness. But in back of that, he was sent into the world with this commission, this time. Now, Maybe an area of controversy regarding the poctum salutis is the notion that God himself needs to covenant within himself to do something. A particularly severe critic of the poctum was the more contemporary theologian Karl Barth, because he read this particular doctrine, I don't think legitimately, but he accused the Reformed tradition in this regard of depicting God as needing to covenant within himself in order to be gracious. And he also depicted it as a kind of plan B. He doesn't use that language, but that's the gist of his criticism, is that God was a God one way prior to the fall, and then after the fall, he covenanted together, so to speak. Uh, the Trinity agreed to assign the Son this task, and now in this manner, in this way, God will be gracious to us. But it's not God's eternal way. There was a previous way, a law way of God being God with us, and then subsequently a gracious gospel way. I think that criticism has infiltrated a lot of Reformed theology, even theology that's very unsympathetic with Bart's bigger project, It's important to answer Bart on that, and one of the things to see is no, it's never the case that God has to covenant within Himself in order to become gracious. That is who He is, and it was. It's really the Reformed doctrine of the eternal decree delivers the Reformed tradition from that criticism, because the pactum isn't something you would call opposite of the divine decree but a way of giving expression to an aspect of the divine decree. God's decree, we always must remember, is eternal. So he eternally willed to be a God who willed us, willed our existence, willed to be a God who would rescue us after the fall in Jesus Christ, willed to be merciful with us, and willed to be our God in a state of redemption and glory for an eternity so it's not as if there was an ungracious, unloving, or a non-willing God prior to God becoming a willing and now creating, or subsequently creating, a gracious God as an afterthought. That's mythology, and that's never what the Pactam is meant to communicate. It's a way of focusing an aspect of the divine decree that in God willing something, he's also willing something about himself, something Bart would actually agree with, that God is willing to be God in relationship with us. And since it's an eternal will of God, you can't get back before a time, in quotes, (laughs) a temporal time in which God wasn't that God. So, it's important to see that God doesn't have to, to uh, negotiate within himself to be good and gracious and kind. That's who he is in all eternity. And the pactum really focuses the work of Christ in human history and shows that, that it that it's rooted back in God himself to be a God of love and grace and glory to us. And that. Uh, shows us his sovereign work of salvation. It's a great source of comfort. In all of my failures, in all of my failings, in all of my temptations, I look back to the one who's my guarantor, my surety, Christ Jesus himself. Thus, the Pactum salutis.
0: Next week, Dr. Beach examines the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation as it unfolds throughout scripture. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.